title, Agonistic Machine Learning, maybe a nice joke. Several people, when they saw the title, not just of this presentation, but I have written about it, uh, and there it's also in the title, began an entire conversation with me about agnostic machine learning. <laughs> it was also tweeted around, uh, Hildebrand speaking on agnostic machine learning. I was totally flabbergasted. Agnostic machine learning, what would that be? Um, I have now changed the subtitle of the paper that I wrote about this to um, from agnostic to agonistic machine learning so that everybody who makes the, the mistake which I can understand is very easily made, um, is immediately from beginning to the end put right. And actually, I'm very happy that, um, that, that people read it like that, because um, going from agnostic to agonistic machine learning is exactly what I'm trying to um, propagate. That is because many people think that since machine learning is done by computers, it must be true, and it must be objective, and it must be taken very serious, and that all the biases that we have as human beings will now finally be eradicated. And that if there is a bias, it is because the, the reality that the machine is trying to compress, I will explain that machine learning is a means to compress a data set into a mathematical formula. Um, that that is an agnostic affair because the machine has no preferences, has no consciousness, no moral preferences. And I'm going to challenge that idea um, on the same grounds that you can defend the idea that machine learning is an agnostic affair, agnostic, so not knowing about what it's doing, on the same grounds, you can say that what we need is agonistic machine learning. That means that um, whenever uh, an application or an infrastructure of machine learning is developed, usually that will be computer scientists sitting down with domain experts. Think of smart cities. They're a wonderful example because smart cities about are about everything. They're about traffic management, about violence management. They're about uh, smart grid energy usage management. Any artificial intelligence that you can think of will also reappear in uh, this idea of the smart city, even health. If you can uh, monitor location and, uh, and different points in time, you're monitoring mobility. If you can correlate that with visiting hospitals or not going to work, staying at home, um, then you already have a lot of data that medical science might be interested in. Um, okay, I want to talk about the ethics of agonistic machine learning. So agonism refers to adversariality. So when these domain experts sit down with the, the computer scientists to build these systems, basically saying, you should, at that moment, so in the early stages, bring in the people that are going to suffer or enjoy the consequences of the contractions, the infrastructures, and the architectures that are built. Not only because that is democratically the right thing to do, but also because that will build better systems that are more sustainable, more robust, because 
those systems are already tuned to the people who are going to be using them. Um, so it's a, it's a double argument, and uh, it means it's not only ethics, but it's also um, expediency, efficiency, effectiveness. Um, just one example I want to give in the beginning, and I want to return to it at the end. If you want to know about the implications of machine learning in real life, then the best thing to do is to go to the type of patterns that big and extremely big companies apply for. So don't wait for them to, <coughs> to use those patterns, but just look at what's, what they are after. And sometimes that comes into the news. So uh, recently it was found out that Amazon has uh, filed for a patent for a wristband that tracks warehouse workers' movements. Well, what's new about that? It's uh, this morning when I gave a lecture, there was somebody who came to me <coughs> who's been around even longer than me on this world. And uh, he started talking about Taylorism. He said, well, there's nothing new at all that we've around blah, blah, blah. Very true. But there is something different about this particular uh, patent. The uh, wristband doesn't only monitor your movements, but it also, via the backend system, as computer scientists call what happens behind the screen, what you don't see, um, it figures out that your way of doing things could be done better if, if you move your hand that way instead of doing this, because that takes more time. And Amazon.com is, of course, interested in reducing labor costs, um, etc. So instead of um, giving text to the person and saying, the next time you have to do this, which the person may not understand, uh, you speak to that person, to the part of the body of that person that you want to change its position. That means the wristband doesn't just monitor, but it also uses haptic um, uh, movements to tell, not you, but this part of you immediately, that you have to change position. Now, I think that's extremely interesting. It would, of course, be even more interesting if I can then talk back the same way. So I feel that the system <coughs> wants me to do this, and I do this, like get out of my way, I'm not going to do that. So here you see systems not just observing, but actually acting on a person, and we can have the whole surveillance uh, debate on that, all very interesting, I don't want to go into that now. I'm now thinking about the agency of these systems, and how it would influence the agency of the employee. Um, and whether the moment will come that we can force Amazon.com to develop a new patent which allows me to, to engage with, though that's a very vague term, it can mean anything, to interact with the system, to speak back to it with my hand. And here we have, of course, the more normal uh, uh, Fitbit, um, undoubtedly all seen. <coughs> this, uh, uh, it, it would be a great joke if it wasn't also uh, making people very vulnerable, of course. The most interesting I found this, 
which is basically uh, scientific research, empirical research, which says, well, <laughs> it doesn't work. You can, you can use it, that's no problem. And if you want to believe that it works, that's also no problem. Self-deception is a, a common human trap, but it doesn't really work, so uh, it, it's PR. I, I, I think that's, there, there are many lessons here. There are many lessons here, maybe even more than in the two previous slides. Okay, so I decided to, to send a title, uh, The Ethics of Agonistic Machine Learning, and I want to do a very simple thing, talk a bit about how I understand ethics, um, how I understand agonism, <coughs> something about how I understand machine learning, and then, of course, we come to uh, the ethics of agonistic machine learning. So <coughs> there, there are many theories about ethics. Um, it can be about doing the right thing. It can be about doing a, the good thing, which is not the same in these theories. And it can be about doing the best thing. And there's also something that uh, has been called ethical wisdom. And the way I have framed it, you can see that the first three are theories about what is the right, the good, and the best decision. And the fourth is interested in acting right or good or best. So maybe you have a theory about what you have to do in a particular situation, and after you have calculated and deliberated and argued with yourself, you come to the right or the good or the best thing to do. But then suddenly you think, hey, I have a mortgage to pay. Let's not do it today. Next, when I have paid off my mortgage, I will do the right, the good, or the best thing. The fourth position is not interested in arguing, deliberating, rationalizing whether we can do that. It's interested whether we are capable of doing the right thing, mostly intuitively. And I find that a very interesting uh, position. So the first, doing the right thing, that is usually um, um, called deontological ethics. Uh, it basically derives from the Kantian categorical imperative um, as opposed to his hypothetical imperative. So it basically says when you have to make a decision that has moral implications, you should always respect the autonomy of the human being that is, or the rational being that is um, going to be affected by your decision. That means a hypothetical imperative would mean that you are aiming to get from A to B, and you're just considering what gets you there best or fastest. And uh, Kant says that has nothing to do with morality. Morality means that you are um, not considering the consequences, but are really looking at what is the right decision here. And the right decision for Kant is the decision that um, respects the autonomy of the human we use. And I'm purposely articulating it in this way because many people say, they, they, they repeat his uh, 
categorical imperative by saying that you are never allowed to use a human being because that doesn't respect that human being's autonomy. But that's not at all what he says. He says, do not merely use the other human being, but when you use that other human being, always respect that person's autonomy. But I think that is an important qualification that, um, that makes it much more difficult. So think of a government and the, the sort of decisions that a government has to make. Government will nearly always be using human beings one way or another. So the Kantian imperative doesn't mean, oh, you're not allowed to do that. You have to sit somewhere in an ivory tower and, and think about everything except the consequences of what you're doing. That's not what Kant said. And the challenge to be using people while respecting their autonomy, that's a much bigger challenge, of course, also because it's a realistic challenge. Um, there's a famous legal philosopher who said that <clears throat> the core of both the rule of law and democracy is equal respect and concern for individual persons. I, I think that's a, a great find. Democracy and rule of law are often opposed to each other. And this is the only maxim that shows that they have the same root. So if you say we must have equal respect and concern for each individual, that is a most wonderful explanation of representative democracy. So it's not just the people who pay taxes or who pay a lot of taxes or who have a university degree or who simply have a lot of money or the people that are so smart that they don't pay any taxes. It's not just those people that get to vote, but everybody. That means there is equal respect and concern. After this voting, we get a majority to rule. In my definition of democracy, democracy is a system where majority rules in a way that allows minorities to become a majority. So if you put a stop behind democracy is a system where the majority rules, that's totally boring. That's majority dictatorship. We have seen that uh, populism, uh, problem, problem, problem. If you take each and every person seriously, if you respect the autonomy of each and every person, then you must say that at some point, um, an individual person can decide to align with another political party or whatever. And that's the meaning of minorities must be able to become majorities. So I'm not talking about majorities as women or black people or whatever. I'm talking about the minority of opinion that, that has not won the elections, that this minority might with the next election become a majority. And that puts a burden on the majority that rules to do it in such a way that major decisions are not irreversible or take into account in other ways the minority that might become a majority. So that makes governing a bit more difficult, but also more interesting. Of course, after the majority gets to rule, rule of law means that there are individual human rights that even the majority cannot overrule. So there you see that the same maxim is uh, also the root of the rule of law. Um, now, of course, we can have discussions about whether autonomy assumes sentience. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, can machines be autonomous in that sense? Does autonomy assume reason? Must we be able to reason? So my cat is very sentient and it does reason, but it's clever not, not, not to show that to us. So I, you know, you won't believe it, I know, but anyway, so animals, uh, we assume do not reason, at least not in our way. Um, are animals autonomous or not? Um, and, and taking both sentience and uh, reason one step further is eccentricity. So the ability to take the perspective of another is that uh, maybe uh, an assumption for an entity to be autonomous. Um, and and I, I just want to tell a very brief story to, to show what I, what I mean. If a small child, let's say one, one and a half year, I talk to that child and that, that child learns by imitating. So I say to the child, you are Charlotte, I am Mireille. And the child says, yes. And it says, you are Charlotte, I am Mireille. And I say, no, you are Charlotte, and I am Mireille. And the child says, yes. You are Charlotte and I am Mireille. It is repeating. So I, the child says, what does this woman want from me? After some time, this doesn't happen suddenly. After some time, the child gets it. And it means, some people call that the birth of the subject. So a baby is born. But that minute that the child looks back at itself from the position of the other, that is the birth of the child as a person, as a subject. And I would say that's also the the start of an autonomous being, the start is, of course, rudimentary. Um, my cat, hmm, anyway, let's not talk about it yet. So the question that this type of ethics asks is, does a specific machine learning application respect the autonomy of the human beings that it targets? Clear. Then we have another stream um, that uh, uh, does virtue ethics, uh, Aristotelian ethics, uh, more asking about the good thing to do than the right thing. Um, so you could say this is about striving how to develop your moral compass. It's very much about experience. The idea that experience and not logic, not deliberation, not argumentation, but experience is what allows you at some point to do the, the good thing. Um, and, and that means there is uh, what, what Aristotle is called practical wisdom involved, phronesis not to be confused with practical in the sense of how do I get classes from A to B, but practical in the sense of having a rich experience that allows you to foresee that if you make a decision, it will have a lot of implications for other people and that you need to consider that. So it's the difference between um, being a very rational person and being a wise person. That's not clearly not the same thing. So Aristotle says, mathematicians are at their best when they're 18. After that, you know, they only go, become less good. But for instance, the judge, a court, becomes better the older she gets. 
Aristotle's would have definitely not said she. But, well. um, so it's about character, not about calculation. It's about it's it's individualist, situationalist rather than rule-based. So you could ask the question: Does a specific machine learning application enable or inhibit developing one's moral compass? So if you can inscribe certain moral rules into the technology, then you are diminishing the normative, um, you're shrinking the normative order because we don't have to make those decisions anymore. And we don't get the experience to make them. Some people say we shouldn't have cars that uh, help us to, to uh, not make bad decisions when we drive. For instance, a car that simply will not leave if it has sensed that you are under the influence of alcohol. There are many other ways to to check whether you're fit for driving. And I had whole discussions with Roger Brown's work, uh, who is uh, extremely, uh, uh, I have very high esteem for him. He's an analytical philosopher in this field, uh, law and uh, these sort of technologies. And he says, well, that means that when we drive a car, we no longer have to, to practice our moral uh, capabilities. And I said to him, but Roger, what, what if my child dies because somebody is trying to practice his, his moral capabilities while driving his car? I'm not interested. I'd rather have uh, that in the car so that my child doesn't die. So I'm not saying that uh, there aren't all types of applications where uh, we would prefer the applications to make uh, these sort of decisions. I'm not saying that that is necessarily a bad thing. But I think there's a difference, for instance, between driving a car and speaking the law. There it becomes a different issue, and I hope uh, to explain that. The third way of looking at ethics is utilitarianism. That means um, you're basically going to look at the consequences of uh, your potential decisions, and then you're going to rank them based on cost benefits. For instance, you say, well, um, <coughs> there's a plane flying over and it's been hijacked, and there are 300 people there, and it's basically also threatening to um, to fly into a city with 4,000 potential victims. So let's calculate. We can shoot the plane now. Then the 300 people will be dead and, and, and some people that are underneath, but at least not those 3,000, so we shoot the plane. That would be a that could be a utilitarian um, calculation. And actually, there is a famous court case in Germany where uh, there was legislation that gave the authority to, I think, the military to take a decision on that basis. And the Supreme Court of Germany, the Constitutional Court of Germany, sorry, decided that we cannot calculate with human lives. And that authority, for that reason, was unlawful. Um, let, let's not go into the details. There are many arguments to be made uh, on all accounts. but. Uh, it shows what utilitarianism could be about. Now, of course, utilitarians are very clever people, so usually they're not talking about ad hoc decisions, like I'm now deciding where to shoot somebody or not, and I'm going to check uh, the implications. That's a bad guy. 
he may become president and, and the amount of bad things he could do is enormous. So if I shoot him now, <coughs> just calculate uh, you know, all the good things that I do. Some people uh, would like to make that calculation. Utilitarianists <coughs> usually think in terms of rules. So they think, what sort of rules could we make that if everybody stuck to that rule, would give less costs and more benefits than another type of rule. And that comes very close actually to Kant's categorical imperative where he says, think whether your action follows from a rule that you want, would want everybody to follow. So if you are going to lie, because you think that has very positive implications, just try to think if everybody would lie, whether we would all be very happy. So rule utilitarianism and Kantian categorical imperative, bien étonné de se trouver ensemble. Uh, many people would not agree, but I think in practice they, uh, they are quite close. Utilitarianism is based on calculation. That means on calculability. You can only calculate if things are calculable. That means there is a tertium comparationis, usually utility or preferences, because if you want to calculate, you must find a unit in which you calculate. So originally, as the word utilitarianism says, it was about utility. Um, but that it turned out that your utility is not my utility, so now it's usually preferences. Um, calculation also assumes qualification. So after you have decided what to calculate, you have to, every time you're adding up things, qualify those things under the same heading. So if you're going to add apples to pears, you can do that if you qualify both as fruit. But if you want to qualify in terms of apples, you, um, you have to decide that a peer is not an apple. And this is something that in empirical and social science, but also in computer science, is often forgotten or hidden, that any quantification assumes qualification. I think that's a very important insight. And then you ask the question, does a specific machine learning application provide more benefits than costs? And of course, you may want to correct the outcome of your um, inquiry uh, for distribution effects, because maybe it has more benefits than costs, but all the benefits go to one person, and all the costs go uh, to the rest, or the other way around. So we have uh, Rawlsian uh, maximum principles to correct for that. Uh, considering the time, I will not go into that. There is uh, a wonderful little book, which I would advise anybody immediately when you get home to <laughs> buy it by Francisco Varela uh, under the title of Ethical Wisdom. Varela was, um, together with Maturana, coined the term autopiosis. After that, Luhmann went and did all sorts of strange things with it, which Man Varela and Maturana uh, were very surprised about and didn't agree with. Uh, Luhmann got to be very famous, Varela Maturana, maybe not. But uh, Varela is a biologist, later became uh, very interested in brain science, neuroscience. Um, and he was a phenomenologist and a pragmatist, uh, philosophical speaking. 
Now he writes in this little book at the beginning, those who demand a detached critical morality based on prescriptive principles, there are those, and there are those who pursue an active and engaged ethics based on a tradition that identifies <coughs> the good. But he says, at first approximation, let me say that a wise or virtuous person is one who knows what is good and spontaneously does it. It is this immediacy of perception and action which we want to examine critically. It, this approach stands in stark contrast to the usual way of investigating ethical behavior, which begins by analyzing the intentional content of an act and ends by evaluating the rationality of particular moral judgments. So basically he's saying, instead of thinking about ethics, Let's find ways to be ethical persons. And of course, he's then going to write about that. The question that you would ask is, does a particular machine learning application overrule, nourish, enable, or discourage enacting uh, ethical wisdom? OK, now I've done ethics. Let's do agonism. So Chantal Mouffe is a, uh, actually a Belgian uh, political theorist. She's at uh, Long School of Economics, I think, for a very long time. And she says there are basically three theories of democracy. The first we've already talked about is uh, representative democracy. So that means you consider the opinion of people as, as individual things, these opinions that you can calculate with. You aggregate them. Um, and basically, it seems like you see votes as preferences, like in utilitarianism. You could also have an argumentation for um, representative <coughs> democracy, as I discussed earlier, based on equal respect and concern. So that is the deontological um, underlying now, since next to representative democracy, there is a theory of deliberative um, democracy. So the fact, yeah, of course, we have to count votes, um, and then uh, that, that's, that's a decision system to, to say who gets to govern for, for four years. But real democracy happens in parliament, where there is deliberation, argumentation, and if people in Parliament are really doing their best to find the best type of rules, you know, they will achieve a rational consensus. The assumption of deliberative um, democratic theory, roles, Habermas, etc., is that you will come at some point to a rational consensus, <clears throat> also from the side of utilitarianism. And Habermas tried to save this perspective on deliberative uh, democracy by saying, well, rationality must be seen in a very broad way, also uh, understanding it from the aesthetic and uh, um, ethical perspective. Not, so not just expediency, not just getting the fastest from A to B. Chantal Mouffe said, this, this is, of course, an illusion. It's an illusion to start with the assumption that we're all going to rationally find a consensus. That assumes that somewhere out there is already the solution. And by 
rational discussion, we will find it. Okay? And she says, well, even if it were true, it isn't true. Go look around. People are going to fundamentally disagree with each other. So let's take for granted that that is what is happening, and not the opposite, because uh, that will make you stronger. So she takes um, a perspective that is more informed by um, pragmatism in a philosophical sense, uh, hermeneutics, and uh, people like Wittgenstein. So an expectancy theory of norms. Basically, she is saying to have a viable democracy with uh, well-functioning institutions, you need to ensure that different voices are heard to achieve a robust outcome. That also, also means, uh, she also goes back to uh, John Dewey, the pragmatist, that you must enable um, publics, not just one public, but uh, different publics, to constitute issues. So I have delegated politics to my representatives so that I can do my own things. Then suddenly I discover they are not doing very well. Then I have to find others. I have to create a public around issues. I have to find others that equally care and agree with me that my representatives and their representatives are not doing a good job. So for John Dewey and Chantal Mouffe, Democracy is working hard. And she then call, calls that uh, an agonistic form of democracy. So she says this is not about antagonism, like you say A, ah, I'm going to say B. No, that's, that's childish and dangerous. We're talking about uh, the public good. It's about you say something, I feel it's wrong, but I say he's such a nice person, let it be. Or, I say, my mortgage, my mortgage, hmm, let's not say that now. Hmm? So she is saying it is so important to have people voice their opinion and discuss. Not because a rational consensus will suddenly come out of the air, but because it will enable better solutions that take into account uh, far more than if you restrict the discussion to what somebody says is rational. One of the things of agonism is that there's nobody who has the ultimate answer to whether your uh, presentation of your concern is rational or not. The idea is this is your concern and it has to be respected and now we're going to have a conversation about that. But nobody is going to say, yeah, that's your concern, but you're, you're a very emotional person and we now have to have a rational discussion. So. Uh, you can come back when you have washed your emotions away. So she's saying that is not going to bring us, um, um, that's not going to bring us good outcome of democratic procedures. Agonism, entirely independent of Chantal Mouffe, was also used by uh, Ari Rip, uh, professor of constructive technology assessment, CTA which he describes as a process of learning. So technology assessment, um, participatory technology assessment, PTA, is a means to say when new types of technologies are developed, we have to sit down together with the people who are going to suffer the consequences. It's also connected with pragmatism and Dewey. Um, because that will make for better outcome, for more robust outcome in the design of these technologies. 
Um, well, considering the time, I think I shall move on to machine learning. So many of the things that Ari Rib says um, are similar to what Chantal Mouffe says, but he talks about it at a much more concrete level in relation to the building, the developing of technologies. Okay, so machine learning, according to the um, one of the, the big men in machine learning who wrote a famous handbook, uh, in which he writes an introductory chapter, and there he defines machine learning. He says machine learning, or a computer program, sorry, is said to learn from experience E with respect to some class of tasks T, I've given the example of law after that, performance measure P, compare that, sorry, again an example for law, if performance at tasks T, as measured by P, improves with experience E. I always say this is like poetry and mathematics. So all the, um, all the ambiguities, all the extra languages out, this, this is what machine learning is. Basically, this means that any machine learning system parasites on human domain expertise. Why? Because to formulate task T and to determine performance metric P, you need a domain expert. So if you want a machine learning system to be able to do artificial legal intelligence, you're going to feed a lot of legal text. You're going to label that text. That means you're going to take out part of the text which you think are important. So statutes, case law, what have you, doctrine. And then you're going to feed that system case law, outcome of cases. And what you're asking the system to do is to find the mathematical formula that connects the input with the output. That's called the target function, so a mathematical function. That's all any machine learning system does. That means all depends on your input data, which is called training data. So if you want to do machine learning, you, you have this data, you divide it, say 80% you use to train your algorithm, You, you tweak the mathematical formula or you allow the system to do that itself, that is not possible, neural nets, etc. You train that, the algorithm until it gets it right nearly all the time. Usually it's approximation. So you have a formula that, based on the input data, connects with the output data. When you have the the optimal, people always talk about optimization, which is a mathematical concept. When you have the optimal function, you take the 20% that you had left out and you check whether you validate whether it works. Um, of course, it is very important after that to test whether it also works out of sample and you get new data. 
If you don't do that and you sell it, because this stuff is getting sold, right? This is about consultants, they have to make a living. They want, maybe they don't have time to test it again. Or maybe they say, hmm, I've already, for instance, you, you use three different performance metrics. The one metric says, um, uh, do you get it right half of the time? <coughs> yes or no? That's the performance metric. The other says, do you get it right eight out of 10 times? As you can understand, the outcome uh, rather depends on your performance metric. And this is a very obvious one, so anybody could see it. But uh, there are very many ways to tweak performance metrics. So if you're a consultant and, and you have to pay your mortgage, then um, you're going to try out different performance metrics. Of course, you're going to do your best with data and with the mathematical formula. But at some point, you have to deliver. So you say, OK, now let's pick that performance metric, because that performance metric says that the system is getting it very much right. And you're not going to tell anybody about the other performance metrics. That's, that's possible. Um, <coughs> The performance metric and the task is based on what computer scientists call the ground truth, which um, in the beginning when we began to interact with computer scientists, we found extremely funny. We kept asking them, what in heaven's name is the ground truth? One of my PhD students in every presentation that she gave on these subjects, she had one slide with a coffee mill where she talked about the ground truth, the truth that first has to be ground the word ground for computer scientists means something else. But the performance metric depends on the ground truth. So uh, there's a lot of talk about how fantastic, uh, for instance, ML does in, uh, in terms of uh, radiology. So imagine you have three radiologists that you ask to help the data scientists to build a very good system. Um, so they look at the x-rays, and the first one says, well, this is clearly an appendix. The second one says, I don't understand how you ever got to that idea. Certainly not an appendix. It is just a rash in uh, a part close to the appendix. Of the, it's no problem at all. And the, the third one says something close to one of them. Now, <coughs> to make the system work, you need the ground truth. Huh? The output data, you must tell the system, this x-ray, according to a real radiologist, means that, because you want to train the system. That's a bit problematic if your three radiologists don't agree, which is not uncommon amongst radiologists. So what do you do? You say, well, you know, the second guy, he's always a very problematic sort of radiologist. We, we just don't have to listen to him. The others are round and about saying the same thing, so we take the average. And then we say, this is what radiologists qualify as uh, the output for this x-ray. Yeah? And this, what the radiologists say, you call it the ground truth. Now you see why, why it is not just ground in the sense of in the field, yeah, on the ground, but it's also ground in the sense that the ground truth is usually has been ground before, uh, before it is frozen, because it has to be frozen, otherwise you can't teach the machine anything. The same, of course, goes for uh, uh, legal artificial intelligence. Um, 
many times it is difficult to get hold of data or um, difficult to uh, even get hold of ground truth. So one solution is to use so-called synthetic data. That means you look at the data that you have and then you say, well, <clears throat> um, I'm going to add data. This is done in a, in a, by computer scientists in a very reliable way. We're going to add data that we make up, but not just make up like that. But they make them up according to uh, certain scientific procedures. So they work with synthetic data, and that also feeds into the ground truth or on the side of the input data. The fact that a computer scientist who is uh, doing scientific research in a university knows how to construct synthetic data and probably uses 12 different methods to construct synthetic data for a particular problem and then tries to see which type of synthetic data for this particular problem is the best approximation of the real data. The fact that that is the case doesn't mean that a consultant who is in a hurry and who's read about synthetic data and also did a course in machine learning is also going to make all that effort. No, he will say there is scientific evidence that you can use synthetic data and I've really thought about it very well. Okay, so the politics here is in who gets to determine the experience, the task, and the performance metric. Who decides which training data are used? Who decides how these data are curated? When you have a data set, it, it can seldom be used just like that because it, there's a lot of noise there. Wrong input data, irrelevant data. Computer scientists call the curation of the data set to prepare it to go into the system as input data, cleansing, which I found, find a wonderful word. So not cleaning, but cleansing. It's like I don't cleanse my laundry, but computer scientists cleans their data. It has a very specific technical meaning. Who decides how the data is cleansed? We can all understand that if you cleanse them, very carefully, which costs a lot of time and domain expertise, your system is going to be much more expensive than if you say, well, can you cleanse it like you did last week with the other data set? <laughs> um, I'm maybe saying things which might sound ridiculous, but I'm very worried that this is what is happening every day. So I'm not just joking. Um, the ethics in are in how they are actually determined, E, T, and P. This is about if there is a bias in the database, for instance, uh, the whole story of um, predictive policing and predictive sentencing in the United States. If there is a bias in the data, um, how are you going to take that particular bias, an unwarranted bias, into account in your system. Um, and there are people who say, well, you, you take race out of the database. But if you're talking about machine learning, the data point race definitely correlates with three or four other data points. So you're not solving any problem, you're just making it invisible. So you better not take race out, because if you keep it in, you can at least see the, the bias. Now, 
Okay, so we have politics, who gets to decide this? Are the people who are going to suffer the consequences of these systems involved? We have ethics, good thinking about what are the implications? Uh, well, all these questions that are articulated. And law, of course, concerns the contestability. Can somebody come and say, oh, how interesting, you trained these algorithms on this data set. Did you also train it on another data set? Was the outcome different? Can you explain that? Why should I then use this output? Or, okay, so you trained this algorithm, this particular type of algorithm on this data. Did you also try out different algorithms? Did you try out different performance metrics? Can I see them? Wow, with that performance metric, we suddenly get very bad performance. Why did you use this one? Do we get to have this conversation? So this conversation is what I mean with agonistic machine learning. Um, now, the core assumption of machine learning is that there is a mathematical relation between the input and the output data. So it assumes that all the things that we do as lawyers, I'm a lawyer, is all very interesting, but underlying it is a mathematical function. If you don't believe that, don't do machine learning. So we have to assume that, otherwise you cannot do machine learning, right? Okay. There's a wonderful text by McKillen uh, under the title of Machinic Neoplatonism. Uh, so there, in the Middle Ages and especially after that, there was the assumption that we have reality, we, we live in reality, but underlying reality there is mathematics, and that is the real reality. We are just messy instantiations of that. If you really want to know what's happening, you should go at to the mathematical level. In science, this has had an enormous impact from the uh, beginning of modernity, 16th century geometric uh, perspective in science. And McKillen says, you now see that this neoplatonic understanding of reality, that the real reality is mathematics, is getting a machinic consequence. So the machines that we are interacting with at this moment to a large extent online, but think of cloud robotics, think of self-driving cars, think of um, Internet of Things, smart cities, etc. Um, th this neoplatonism is now getting a machinic um, effect. There was a famous conversation between uh, Dawkins and Zuckerberg, if you, if you are famous you get to talk with each other, <laughs> where Dawkins asked Zuckerberg, what, 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 what really interests you? What would you really like to know? Is there something that you want? Why, why are you doing all this? Is it the money or? And then he said, well, I'm actually curious about whether there is a fundamental mathematical law underlying human social relationships that governs the balance of who and what we all care about. And he says, I bet there is. So why does Facebook want all this data? To get richer? Of course not. Superbank um, has had many offers to sell his business for incredible amounts of money. Uh, the business has so much money, it could buy three or four governments if it wanted, right? Um, he is not interested in money. 
he's not stupid, so he knows that to survive, he must be interested in money, and uh, he knows how to do these things. But his real motivation and incentive is to find this mathematical formula, and we are giving him the data to uncover that formula. Now, we can sit down and have a laugh and say, that's not possible. We can say, well, that's a dream of a geek. But it happens to be a very um, powerful geek um, who happens to be able to influence people, not in the sense that he has control over the social network. I don't believe that at all, because I don't believe in this assumption at all. But as long as everybody else believes it, it has effects. The system is basically run by uh, the advertising model, of course. Uh, many people say, what if all these people that are interested in artificial intelligence stop investing all their effort in making us click on the right advertisement, right? That's where all the effort is going. What if we stop doing that and put all that effort into things that we, as a polity, find interesting? And my personal opinion, uh, not entirely uninformed, I think, is that at, at one moment the advertisers, so the people who produce toothpaste or bags or what you want, the advertisers are going to discover that this whole advertising model has the emperor's clothes. Mm -hmm. That they get, like people say, oh, Facebook is sharing my personal data with all these advertisers. No. Facebook does not share even one personal data with anybody, certainly not with advertisers. They allow you, if you pay for it, to advertise at a certain space. But you don't get to see that space at all. And you sort of have to trust that it actually happens. So once again, at some point, I think advertisers will wake up and say, why are we doing this? I'm looking forward to that moment. <laughs> um, okay, uh, last remarks about agonism, agonistic machine learning. There's a famous guy, Duncan Watts. He's one of the founding fathers of the science of networks. He wrote this book in which he claims that based on research he did, we're all connected via six no's. So I know <coughs> you, you know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that knows me. It's a, a myth. When you actually look at the book and at the research that he did, it certainly doesn't follow. But it's a nice myth right, that, that we keep telling each other and what good it does, I don't know. But he's become very famous with it. And um, there is no doubt about the fact that he's an excellent researcher. He's the first to say that the conclusions that people have drawn from his book are outrageous. So. Uh, in an article in which he argues that we should focus less on interpretation and more on prediction, something that I don't agree with, <coughs> so I decided to, to dissect the article, to read it really well, to be able to argue against him. And there, I, it was like a troll. I found a treasure because he makes a difference in that article between exploratory machine learning research design and confirmatory uh, machine learning design. So he explains exploratory machine learning as researchers that study different tasks. So you define different tasks and then see what happens. 
fit multiple models. In computer science terms, that is you, you develop a hypothesis space. So what you're after is a target function between input and output. It's a mathematical function. But that function is not given. You don't know it. So you develop a space, as mathematicians say, with hypothesis of that function. That's something for mathematicians. It's all very complex. But you can develop a large hypothesis space, a very multidimensional hypothesis space that uses a lot of features, a lot of uh, data points, or a smaller one. A large one is definitely not always better than a smaller one, but uh, there are many different ways to do that, depending on the problem that you want to solve. So exploratory research design means you have experimented with, uh, for instance, different hypothesis spaces. Try out different exclusion rules. So you say, OK, if we don't take this sort of data points into account, what happens? If that doesn't make a difference, I don't need those data. I don't need to collect them, for instance. Uh, test on multiple performance metrics, we've already uh, discussed that. But then he says, and here it turns out that Duncan Watts is the first agonistic machine learner in the world. He says, when reporting their findings, these researchers should transparency, transparently declare their full sequence of design choices. For instance, to avoid creating false impressions of having actually confirmed hypothesis rather than simply having generated one. So the target function is a hypothesis about the relationship between input and output. And then he said they should re report performance in terms of multiple metrics. So if you do exploratory research, you use multiple metrics to see what works best, and they should report on that and show what they did to avoid creating a false appearance of accuracy. Now, if you've played around <coughs> with different types of exploratory uh, research design, and you, you're convinced that you've now found the best hypothesis, then you start doing confirmatory research. And he says, if you do that, so if you're going to claim that this is really the best approximation of this mathematical function, then you should be required to pre-register your research design. I don't know if you're aware of that, but I think now 10, 15 years ago, in medical journals, medical science journals, it is a requirement if you want to be published to pre-register your research design. If you don't do it, they say, throw it out, because it doesn't mean anything. We don't know how you started. We don't know how you tweaked stuff. We're not publishing it. It's not science that is um, whatever you want to call it. Basically, Duncan Watts is arguing the same thing should happen to machine learning application. So if you want to claim, for instance, in medical science, basically he's talking about scientific <coughs> research, of course, um, that you have confirmed the hypothesis, then you have to, sh to, to put your cards on the table in advance and explain exactly what happened. So that means all the decisions about uh, pre-processing choices, uh, the cleansing of the data, how you did it, model specifications, your hypothesis space, evaluation metric, performance metric. And you must show that you did out-of-sample 
predictions. So you have this data set that you divide into training and validation. Don't call the validation set test data. That's not test data, that's validation data. That's all in the realm of description. If you want to confirm, you have to, after you finish your research, you have to go and find other data and see if it works. And then he does suggestions about um, what, what sort of publicly accessible register uh, should be, could be used for this. So agonistic machine learning would require that those who may suffer or enjoy the consequences of an application are invited to join the early stage of the research design are primed in the relevant design choices and their trade-offs, maybe by independent machine learning experts and domain experts, are invited to uncover new concrete trade-offs. Each, each design decision in machine learning design has trade-offs. There is no decision that doesn't have trade-offs. And these trade-offs are very concrete. They're not philosophy. They are they mean that your system gets ready fast, but is not very accurate. They mean that the system is very accurate, but gets it all wrong. Google pneumonia and, um, well, machine learning. There's, there's a famous example now around of a system that wanted to check uh, the factors that influence morbidity within a certain time limit of people that have contracted pneumonia. The system had a very high accuracy and got it entirely wrong. And that article shows very nicely how come. We don't have time for it, but anyway. So um, these people should be invited to uncover new complete trade-offs. They should be able to participate in the construction of the application or raise actionable objections against the application. So it shouldn't just be in, you have to help me, the company, for instance, or the government, to make this uh, application, but they should also be able to say, but this application has only costs. This application doesn't um, respect the autonomy of the humans it targets. For instance, it reduces all of us to manipulable data points. We don't like that. Does it enable or inhibit developing one's moral compass? Does it actually diminish or bypass people's agency? Does a specific machine learning application unfairly redistribute benefits and costs? It, people always talk about benefits and costs as if that's an issue, but often it's about the distribution of uh, risks, for instance. Does it induce new types of exclusion, create or redistribute vulnerability and risks? Does a particular machine learning application overrule, nourish, enable, or discourage enacting ethical wisdom? Does it create or remove affordances to act on one's moral compass, to actually care, to actually take care, to protect, and to make a difference? Or does it Make, turn human beings into puppets that do not make any difference anymore because the systems are already doing everything. And considering all the traders that are at the basis of these systems, that is not only problematic from the ethical perspective, but also from uh, 
the perspectives of expediency, etc. And all these questions that I just raised, you can ask for these um, tracking uh, stars. Okay, so this is my conclusion.